the rates have been locked at, you know, let's say one, two, or three percent. It's completely distorted the way that people allocate capital, uh, whether it's human capital, whether it's physical capital. They've gone ahead and done things specifically because the money is essentially free, rather than pursuing them because they'll go ahead and provide a real economic value. Hello there, how are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini. It's the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got Joe Consorti making his debut on the show. Now, if you don't know Joe, he is working with Nick Bartier on the Bitcoin layer, and his work has seen him see massive growth on Twitter, which has been really cool to watch. So when I had the show book with Nick, me and Danny talked about it and said, well, let's get Joe on at the same time. Let's get him on to talk about a little bit of macro now, this was recorded before all the shit show of the UK politics turned into even more of a shit show. So you'll have to ignore the reference to Liz Truss and uh, Quasi Quartang and the fact that Liz was appearing in the background on our screens. Well, that was quite ominous, I think, for poor Elizabeth. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this. If you do have any questions about this show, any show, anything else, please do hit me up. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. And I do try and reply. Well, it's not, I don't even just try. I do reply to everyone. So if you do have anything, do get in touch. It is me who answers. It isn't Danny. All right. Hope you enjoy the show and I'll see you all later. Morning, Joe. Welcome to What Bitcoin Did. How are you, man? I'm well, Peter. Thanks for having me. Um, your second podcast you've done. That's right. I heard you absolutely crushed it with Preston. Thank you. I appreciate that. I haven't heard it yet, but uh, we'll check that out. Um, so we can't get away from the fact that your boss is sat over there. He is. Yeah, he sat over there on the couch. He's yeah. going to have a long list of notes for things that I, uh, I get right and wrong. So excited for that. There's, there's no right or wrong. There's only opinion. That's exactly right. So what do you, what do you and him disagree on? Not a whole lot. Um, I mean, when... I started publishing my macro thoughts. A lot of what I think aligns with him. And, and since I started working with Nick, he's shaped a lot of my thinking. So there isn't necessarily a whole lot that, that we disagree on. Um, I certainly think that when it comes to Bitcoin, there's probably a future that's a little bit closer than you know the next several decades. Um, like we sometimes talk about where Bitcoin is uh, sort of this alternative to the dollar. Um, we're starting to see the emergence of technologies that could push it closer to that medium of exchange. So I think that's, if anything, the only thing we disagree on. When it comes to macro, we're basically eye to eye. Well, he's basically a boomer, so <laughs> he's allowed that. Um, okay, so welcome. Uh, I don't always do this, but uh, some people listening might not know who you are. They might have not listened to Preston's show. They might have not seen your growing profile on Twitter, which hasn't uh, been missed by all of us, especially Danny. Uh, can you give us a bit of your background? For sure. So uh, my name is Joe. I am a finance and economics student, uh, formerly at the University of Vermont. And I have been studying markets for uh, a number of years now, four or five years. I took up an interest in them during high school. And then that sort of shaped a lot of my path through college. And so uh, while I was at college, um, I met a great deal of people uh, who introduced me to, uh, to Bitcoin and uh, sort of Showed, showed this technology to me. They sent me a couple of different articles, um, The Masters and Slaves of Money by Breedlove and The Bullish Case for Bitcoin by Vijay Boyapati, right? Yes. Both, both must reads. And uh, yeah, no, so I was exposed to those during college and uh, sort of just going about my degree, learning more about these things uh, over time. And then eventually um, I saw what Dylan was doing uh, with, his, uh, with his Twitter account. I had been studying and researching markets on my own for, for quite some time. And uh, Dylan sort of showed that, you know, 
this is something you could do. You could go out, publish research on your own and, uh, you know, turn that into a, a job, a career. So I figured I would, uh, I would do something similar. I didn't want to drop out because I was, uh, I was three years, uh, three years in, and uh, I decided to just slam on the credits, do as many credits as I could uh, at once and focus the majority of my last semester uh, on uh, researching and publishing about Bitcoin and macro. That's what I did. And uh, eventually I got noticed by uh, Nick over there sitting on the couch through a, uh, a mutual acquaintance of ours. And uh, the rest is history. Now I do a markets analysis and uh, sort of business development over the Bitcoin layer. You were studying economics and during that time you just have a, discovered Bitcoin. Uh, when you were studying economics, did you have any kind of suspicions that some of the things you might have been being taught that they're a little bit screwy in terms of, uh, say, Keynesian economics? I did A-level economics. I know, I know that's amazing, but I actually did. Uh, and uh, I just took it all in, soaked it all in as a student, as a, I don't know if you know, but A-levels is 16 to 18. And so when you're taught at that age, as we're not really taught to question things, it's, it's taught as facts. Um, when you were studying economics uh, at university, were you questioning it at all? Or did you discover Bitcoin and then start to question things? How did it kind of work for you? Yeah. So originally I, I started taking everything mostly at face value. There wasn't a whole lot within my education that I questioned. I was, you know, basically taking it all in, right? The, the necessity for fractional reserve banking, the necessity of, of a central entity that sets the price of money and, and dictates, you know, how it ebbs and flows. And I just, I, I took that all in, right? I, I took in the idea that, you know, the, the Fed through controlling the price of money could, you know, essentially control everything that they were an absolute necessity. I, I didn't really question a whole lot. I began to question it uh, only after I was sent uh, these two two articles, and I sort of dove down the rabbit hole. Um, so for me, that was a, that was a huge blessing, right? I think right now I'd still be on the path of taking all this Keynesian, you know, garbage at face value. That's what I have a degree in, obviously, without questioning it a whole lot. I think Bitcoin um, introduced a healthy level of skepticism into the way that I think um, about markets, into the way that I think about the whole world. Uh, and that's, you know, that's been beneficial for me. Bitcoin has really shaped a lot of my thinking when it comes to that. Was there a eureka moment for you with Bitcoin? With, with Bitcoin, the eureka yeah. moment for me uh, was the absolute scarcity. That was something that uh, absolutely blew my mind initially. And it's something that basically everybody has tremendous difficulty conceptualizing, right? You know, not only is this uh, absolutely scarce, but how can that be secure? How can that be so? Um, you know, how, how does it stay absolutely scarce? Why is this? Um, that was sort of the, the eureka moment for me, if you will. Because obviously we've had this, uh, this credit-based monetary system that sort of relied um, on expansion and contraction of, uh, of credit through time. Um, and uh, obviously the money supply has really grown, you know, if you take a look at it exponentially. And so understanding that Bitcoin is, is sort of a, an alternative vehicle for people to uh, park their wealth and not just uh, individuals, but companies uh, and, uh, and sovereign nations. And so once that clicked for me that the entire system is incumbent on the continuous expansion of credit and money, um, that's when Bitcoin really clicked for me. And I sort of begin to understand this as a necessity um, for the perpetual, uh, you know, money supply expansion. So did that understanding come while you were at university? Yeah. Did you at any point then start to question? Did you ever put Bitcoin to your professors? So I know that, uh, I know that Dylan asked a few questions to a couple of the mutual professors that we had, but I personally didn't. I was, I was more content to just stay in my lane and research these things and then, you know, uh, sort of begin questioning authority, but not necessarily raising my hand in class and, you know, calling things out, right? Well, I think we should teach kids to question more. We should. I think so. Yeah, I think we should. Um, okay. So, so you finished your course. You didn't drop out. No. Okay. You finished your course. Um, did you feel 
Well, let me ask you another thing. Austrian economics was not a term I'd heard of until Bitcoin, but it is a school of economics. Uh, Keynesian is taught, it was taught to you, it was taught to me. Do you feel there is like a, uh, sus- like, do you have suspicions around the reasons that exist? Because I would have thought a proper economics degree would balance up all schools of economics and say, here is a theory, here is another theory, and you work through those, you debate them. Yeah. So I think, yeah, yeah, I I do think there's a reason that Keynesian economics is taught and Austrian economics isn't. Um, I I think, you know, when you take a look at the United States monetary system from a top-down perspective, Keynesian economics really posits that there has to be somebody at the top that manages the boom and bust cycle, right? The boom and bust cycle is the natural order of the business cycle. Uh, you know, business, businesses can't help themselves when it comes to, you know, uh, taking, up, taking on all this cheap money and credit that they can't finance. And so the, the big central bank needs to step in um, and, uh, and, and correct that um, with, a, with a bust, uh, correct, um, you know, the, the boom and bust cycle sort of. Um, but in actuality, it's the total inverse of that, right? Where the normal business cycle is just slow and steady gains to productivity, right? The price of money gets set in the free market. Um, it's not something that gets manipulated. And sure, you don't have these massive booms and massive busts. It's, it's more so just, you know, it, it, expansion and contraction through time. Um, and there isn't any inter- intervention there. And so I think the reason Keynesian economics is, is pushed so much and Austrian economics isn't is because at the center of, uh, you know, Austrian economics, there's a sort of understanding that, you know, nobody knows how to run the economy. Um, the economy functions in and of itself. These free market mechanisms, nobody can understand fully, um, whereas Keynesian economics tries to apply science to all of that. So they're two completely different things. Um, and I think that the reason Keynesian economics are taught is because uh, you need students to believe that there's no way you're going to be able to understand all of this stuff. And there's no way that uh, there's any alternative to the system. This is what the system is. So you think it's kind of propaganda? Yeah, yeah, to some degree. So it perpetuates the system? Yeah. But I do believe there are people within that who actually believe in, well, we know there are people who believe in Keynesian economics. They think this is the right way to manage an economy. There are criticisms of Austrian economics. Yeah. And you've seen the, the track record of people like Paul Krugman. I know. Right? <laughs> I know. Yeah, he's not a Bitcoin fan, is he? No. All right, okay. Um, so another thing I've noticed uh, is that you've taken more of a particular interest in lightning. Uh, and I think possibly that's because, well, it's probably for a couple of reasons. I mean, for m- myself and Danny, uh, when I first got into Bitcoin, there was lo- no lightning network. And so we've kind of lived with its growth. Uh, but at the same time, I'm kind of like setting my ways of using the base chain. I do use a lightning network, but I'm really, I'm a base chain maximalist. Um, but you've arrived at a time when both exist. What, what is it? Is it a business reason that's drawn you to it? Is as Nick encouraged you and said, look, we need to spend more time with this? Or do you have like a natural like desire to learn about it more? Were you just drawn into it more? So it's a number of things. I think it's the the final thing you said, where it's I'm 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 drawn to it. I want to learn more about it. Um, the the idea of a technology that's still in its infancy, like the Lightning Network, that fascinates me. And understanding that the security of the Bitcoin blockchain is absolutely necessary, right? Um, you know, there needs to be, uh, you know, these these transactions are extremely slow uh, for a reason, right? You know, it's it's to maintain the security of the base chain, to maintain the rule set of the base chain. Um, whereas Lightning Network is sort of a way to verifiably represent the Bitcoin that are on that base layer and then transact them at lightning speed, right? Hence lightning. And so, you know, what really drew me to it initially, um, obviously I've, I've read 
what, what Nick has put out. And the most recent piece that I did was heavily inspired off of uh, all four of his former uh, Bitcoin Lightning sort of financial theory pieces. The one that I did was an extension of it. But what drew me to Lightning more so than anything else was that the dollar was created to transact gold, but it wasn't verifiably representative of gold, right? We know this. Uh, people printed, uh, every central bank, right, you, you, you know, the Federal Reserve printed uh, notes far in excess of the gold that they actually held, uh, whereas the Lightning Network was created to transact Bitcoin, and it is verifiably representative of Bitcoin, right? And so, whereas dollars can be heavily manipulated and, you know, created well in excess of the amount of gold you have, same can't be said for transacting Bitcoin across Lightning Network. And so that's what really clicked for me. And that's what made me want to, to dive in and study it more. And so what, when you've spent time looking at it, uh, diving down into the Lightning rabbit hole, have you had any particular eureka moments with that as well? Yes. Because so, you know what, I, Joe, I don't spend enough time looking at the Lightning Network. I just don't. I should do. I should spend more time. I just don't. Yeah, which is understandable. Uh, there's a whole lot going on. Lightning Labs does a fantastic job of synthesizing everything that goes on in a Lightning Network. Uh, they, they put out a Substack, I believe, monthly. And also, I think the, the amount of pundits uh, who are, are thought leaders, if you will, who work in, in Bitcoin are writing about Lightning Network more and more and more. And so there's more of an opportunity to learn about it. Um, I think within, uh, within Lightning, some of the, the, the things that are going on now that are extremely impressive are there are new tools that are emerging in order to bring Bitcoin more towards uh, a traditional financial market alternative. Um, we talk about you know, Bitcoin replacing the dollar and Nick has spoken about why that juxtaposition isn't necessarily all there. It's not you know, a, the, the correct juxtaposition to make. Um, but with tools that are being created on Lightning right now uh, in order to capture sort of a native rate of return, right, whether that be parking your money in Lightning on your own, uh, leasing out Lightning liquidity if you're an effective channel manager. Um, there are several technologies that are being built right now that will allow traditional financial par uh, market participants to park their wealth on the Lightning Network, um, which of course you know operates on top of Bitcoin, which is the most uh, you know the most uh, efficient, the most secure um, payments network. Uh, and so the Lightning Network is sort of opening the gates for. Uh, traditional financial markets to be subsumed uh, on top of Bitcoin. So can you give me some examples of these technologies? Talk me through what's happening. For sure, yeah. So one of them is uh, Lightning Liquidity Marketplaces. Basically, the concept is uh, participants can lease channel liquidity from one another. So one of the big issues or one of the big difficulties when operating a Lightning channel is securing sufficient inbound liquidity, right? Getting people to, to open up connections with you. And there are different marketplaces where you can actually go on and lease liquidity for a specific period of time. Um, I'm not necessarily a technical expert, uh, so I don't necessarily know the inner mechanisms. But what I do know is I'm that- I'm with you there. Yeah. If you're leasing uh, channel liquidity for a predetermined period of time, that's akin to a traditional fixed income market, right? Where there's a specified rate of return, you both enter into a contract. And the an example of one of those uh, markets is Magma from Amboss Technologies. And basically, um, they're an open marketplace that allows node operators to go on, uh, determine whether or not they want to, you know, you can lease channel liquidity, you can, uh, or you can actually put your channel liquidity up um, for lease. And uh, there are different participants on the network. And depending on your needs, right, if you want to become a more robust Lightning participant, or if you're a really good channel, channel operator and you've got, you know, or a node operator, you've got several channels and you want to lease some of that liquidity out to people who might need it, uh, you can 
charge a rate for that, right? A rate of return. And these positive real interest rates that are emerging native to the Lightning Network are, you know, ostensibly going to attract traditional financial market participants, right? There's this structural demand for cash flowing instruments all around the world. That's why you see uh, U.S. treasuries being used as sort of like a base layer reserve asset. And technologies like this, where participants have the opportunity um, to take their expertise in Lightning and then essentially sell it for a rate of return, right? That's going to attract financial market participants, right? If there's a native rate of return that can be earned, uh, you know, through efficient channel management, that's going to attract sovereigns. It's going to attract companies who have expertise in Lightning. And then that's going to increase the liquidity profile, increase the capital that's going on to Bitcoin and Lightning, uh, both monetary and human capital. Um, and it's pushing, it's going to push Bitcoin closer to becoming an eventual sort of base layer reserve uh, asset alternative. But who, who would want to uh, lease liquidity? For what reason? So like if, you, if you're an effective like node operator, let's take River Financial, for example. Yep. Um, if you have several channels, um, you know, if you have a, a whole bunch of liquidity, um, you know, 50, 100, 150 Bitcoin parked on the Lightning Network, and some of your channels are more inactive, you don't have a whole lot of connections, you can leverage those channels that don't have a great deal of connections, but there's liquidity, right, in those channels. And then you could lease it to participants who are looking to gain more connections on the Lightning Network. So if you know how to manage uh, a Lightning node effectively, then you essentially have a skill that people are willing to pay for, right? They're willing to pay you in order to help them route liquidity. And so that's why somebody like River Financial, who might have some inactive peers, uh, you know, but obviously we're in a bit of a bear market, lightning activity may be slowing. They have the ability to go onto a platform like this, uh, and there are several other alternatives, and lease out some of that liquidity to participants who are willing to buy it and then build out their own channels. All right, the other thing that I've heard a lot about with the Lightning Network is Taro. I know that's uh, been growing, growing in interest. People have talked about stable coins on Taro. People have talked about other uh, assets on Taro. How, how far are we at with that? What has like, the development been like? For sure. So Taro, they just released their first, uh, their first alpha code um, out to the public, and, and people are actually, uh, developers are, are using it and experimenting with it. And um, essentially, what Taro allows uh, Bitcoin to do, and then eventually Lightning, as of right now, it's only, native to, uh, it only, it's only native to Bitcoin, is it allows issuers of assets to issue assets on the Bitcoin blockchain. Um, so, you know, people hear that, they think NFTs, they think all this other, you know, garbage. Uh, in my mind, the concept of holding Bitcoin in dollars in the same wallet comes to mind. And I'm talking native wallets, right? Obviously, you have things like Strike where you can hold uh, Bitcoin and dollars in the same API, but it's not the same wallet. Um, Taro essentially allows asset issuers, you know, whether they're me issuing consorti bucks or the United States Treasury issuing, uh, you know, fixed income instruments um, to do that native to the Lightning Network. And so this is another development that's going to sort of bring uh, uh, liquidity towards uh, Bitcoin and Lightning because you know we we talk about dollars not necessarily being you know, competing with Bitcoin but you know existing in the same universe as Bitcoin. There's a structural demand for dollars uh, around the world, um, and for uh, individuals uh, in El Salvador, you mentioned you went to El Salvador and uh, you use Bitcoin for a whole lot of your journey. Some people may not have the ability to do that. Some people want to use stable coins in tandem with that. And with Taro, it enables that to occur native to Bitcoin, right? So that's a huge leap forward uh, for the individual being able to hold Bitcoin and dollars in the same wallet. Do we know on these dollars on Taro, Danny? I know you've looked at it a little bit, but do we know if uh, what the reserve status is for them? Will some entity be able, like, could anyone create a dollar on Taro 
And if I did, uh, you know, would I be like Tether saying I'm fully backed, I'm fully reserved? So that's the thing. You, whenever you're issuing an asset on Taro, uh, anybody can do it. And when you're buying an asset on Taro, uh, you know, buy, buying a, a, you know, a Bitcoin Lightning asset that isn't a Bitcoin, um, you're incurring all of the counterparty risk mm-hmm. that's associated with the issuer. Right, so you could be buying some random coin, and you can actually uh, on Terra you can verify who's issuing it and how much of it there is in circulation. Um, you know, it, it could be uh, it could be me issuing the coin, and it could have you know an, a completely infinite supply. You'd be able to verify that, but you know it'd be ostensibly worthless. Um, versus somebody more reputable, right? Um, like uh, you know River Financial. You know they could they could I've used that example twice now, um, but they can issue an asset, and then you're assuming the counterparty risk uh, associated with them. Um, you're essentially uh, trusting them to uh, get, provide an asset that's worthwhile, and you have the ability to purchase it. So really, you know, Terra opens up the floodgates for really, really reputable asset issuers. You know, the United States government, uh, you know, corporations, things like that. Uh, all of that activity to be native to Bitcoin, and it just opens up for you know other demands, right? Use cases that. I might not necessarily agree with like, you know, NFTs and, and all this other stuff. It also opens up the floodgates for that to be native to Bitcoin too. So we could get a flood of shit coins on Bitcoin, on, on the Lightning Network? We could, yeah. Okay. And does this kill the use case for something like Ethereum? I would say, I would say probably. Um, the reason being is because if you can, you know, if you can replicate the exact same uh, idea of uh, uh, having a smart contract, um, and then being able to issue tokens on top of that smart contract, um, there's more functionality with Ethereum, right? Um, but the question is, like, is, is it, that an upside? There? Is it a solution searching for a problem, though? I think more often than not, what gets issued on Ethereum is a solution searching for a problem. Um, I think, like, alternative assets, if you're going to issue one, you may as well issue it on the platform that already has the network effects going for it. It already has, in, in, with Lightning and with Bitcoin, it has two and a half times the liquidity of Ethereum. So I think maybe as of right now, it doesn't, uh, you know, Taro in its current state doesn't consume that liquidity that's currently on Ethereum. It doesn't kill Ethereum. But what it does is moving forward, it opens up a genuine alternative uh, for people that do want to create, you know, new digital assets is the term, uh, or for for stablecoin issuers, right, to, to do that native to Bitcoin instead of doing it on Ethereum, which to this point has been really, you know, your, your, your go-to place. You're going to issue a stablecoin. Moving forward, it, it opens the floodgates for Lightning's network effects, which are pretty substantial, right? All these channel connections between participants, 5,000 Bitcoin uh, locked up, um, and also the, the extremely large liquidity profile of Bitcoin. Moving forward, it opens up the option for uh, stablecoin issuers to do that natively to Bitcoin and Lightning. And so that's, I think, the key thing here. I think through time, it's not necessarily Taro exists now. Ethereum no longer has any participants on it. Stablecoins no longer exist on it. I think moving through time, you're going to start to see the emergence of stablecoins, and then it's going to subsume more of that liquidity, then we'll, we'll be going to Ethereum. Interesting. So with these uh, well, different digital assets that exist on Taro, uh, are you spending sats to move them around, or do they move around independent? So one of the cool things about Taro is that it can move throughout Bitcoin um, and the Lightning Network and Participants that are in the middle, um, at least in the case of the Lightning Network and on the Bitcoin main chain, they don't need to know that another asset is being routed. Right? Oh, okay. So uh, N nodes on the Bitcoin blockchain, the only, the only people that need to be aware that there's another asset that's being transferred other than Satoshi's are the two N participants. So the person who's sending, uh, let's use you know, Lightning dollars, for example. Um, if I'm sending Lightning dollars to you 
you need to be aware of the exchange rate for Lightning dollars, and I need to be aware of it. And anybody else who wants to issue and transact with that asset needs to be aware of it. But the rest of Bitcoin doesn't need to. Um, and but, but the rest of Bitcoin can also take a look and, uh, and, and take a look at the asset and verify the supply and things of that sort. Um, so it's, it's, it's essentially, it's running on top of Bitcoin. It's using the existing uh, Bitcoin blockchain the way that uh, these transactions settle. But, you know, n- it's, it's not as if there are other assets entering the Bitcoin ecosystem, right? They're, these assets are being transmitted using an exchange rate to 21 million sats. It's not as if the Bitcoin supply will now be 21 million Satoshis plus 1 trillion, you know, lightning dollars plus, you know, X, yeah. Y, and Z. It'll all be transmitting uh, using those 21 million Satoshis. And the same holds true for the lightning network. So the only people that need to be aware of this new asset are the end channels. So I'm sending, you know, I'm sending uh, uh, lightning dollars to your channel. Um, from my channel, I need to be aware of lightning dollars. You need to be aware of lightning dollars between us and other people who are transacting with lightning dollars. We all maintain an exchange rate, but we're using Satoshis in order to route that liquidity, right? Um, which is pretty remarkable. So, uh, you know, I send lightning dollars, the first hop channel that it goes to, it, it transmits the Satoshis. And then it goes through all of the most efficient channels to find the most efficient route on the last top to you. It changes to lightning dollars, uh, which is very remarkable because, you know, it's leveraging the existing network effects of lightning, but there's, you know, the, the, the middle nodes don't need to know about it. So they're like piggyback on to sat- Satoshi's. The Satoshi's have moved around. Yeah, I, I don't really understand. So, okay, I've got $10 in. Would you want to explain it to me? Yeah, absolutely. So basically, like I just explained, um, the two uh, tarot channels on the end who are sending and receiving the payments, they're aware of the exchange rate. They're aware that there's another asset that's being traded. Um, and they're using Satoshis to transmit between one another. So you and I maintain an exchange rate uh, for that. And then that exchange rate gets activated when I'm moving lightning dollars to Satoshis. It's beaming 43 thousand Satoshis through the most efficient channel. And then just before it gets back to you, it's converting at our stored exchange rate back to lightning dollars. Um, so that's essentially the, the way that the tarot on the lightning network works. But the node operators don't get paid to do this. Well, they get, well, they get their normal routing fees. So they, okay. get, they get the base fee and then whatever routing fee that they set still. But to their knowledge, all their routing is, is Bitcoin and Satoshis, which is great for them yeah. because... We talk about the structural demand for dollars, and we'll probably get into it um, a little bit more as well. But globally, obviously, we're the largest world reserve currency. Um, There's a structural demand for uh, dollars and treasuries uh, from the United States government as collateral. And so if you think that there exists a structural demand for dollars now, if the United States government, you know, say, wanted to step in and and experiment with with doing something like a stablecoin on Lightning, all of that demand for dollars, uh, or or any stablecoin for that matter, that, that, you know, uh, it maintains a one-to-one exchange rate with dollars, is now ported onto the Bitcoin and Lightning Network, right? So there's there's a commensurate mm. increase in liquidity for any demand, which we know there's a ton of, for dollars. And that gets ported natively to, to the Lightning Network and Bitcoin. This show is brought to you by BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking services for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am a customer of BCB too. Now, they heard about the difficulty I had finding a payment service provider that understands Bitcoin and reached out to me. 
BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in UK and Europe, and they are now expanding globally. And they have this incredible network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now listen, I know, like me, a whole bunch of you had trouble with finding banking service providers. So if you're looking for a bank who understands and supports Bitcoin companies, rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you're going to want to become a BCB customer. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Next up is my new sponsor, Wasabi, who I am now using to make sure I keep my Bitcoin private. Now, with the release of Wasabi 2.0, Bitcoin privacy is now effortless as a wallet has introduced privacy by default. Rather than having to choose to coin join, this can all be done automatically. So you just need to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can spend freely. All the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement. I remember when I used to use the previous Wasabi, you know, it's a little bit tricky trying to understand how to do a coin join. All that's taken away. It's all done automatically for you. You also get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi, so you never leak your IP address. There's also no minimum denomination, so any amount you receive from CoinJoin is totally private. Now, privacy is something I've been taking more seriously recently, and with Wasabi 2.0, this makes it so easy. So if you want to find out more, please do go and check out wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Next up is my new sponsor, the Texas Blockchain Council. Now on November the 17th and 18th, the Texas Blockchain Council are putting on the Texas Blockchain Summit in Bitcoin country, Austin, Texas. And now this is a two-day event of thought leadership for Bitcoin. Day one is all that any Texas Bitcoin miner could ask for. Top Bitcoin CEOs and their teams will be hanging out in Austin. And day two with top policy leaders from the US, both federal and state legislators, senators, House of Representatives, CFTC commissioners. What more can you ask for? And I'm not just promoting it here on my podcast. I'm going to be heading to the event in Austin. I'm going to be in Vegas with Danny, but I'm going to be catching a flight over to Austin to see my Texas Bitcoin buddies and interviewing a very important person on stage. So make sure you book your ticket and check out this event. Hopefully, I'll see you there. Hopefully, we'll get a chance to hang out. Right. If you want to find out more, please head over to TexasBlockchainSummit.org and use the discount code PeterMC20 for a 20% discount at checkout and let them know that I sent you there. This offer is valid until the end of October, and I hope to see you all down in Austin, Texas. Also today, we have Gemini, who are also the lead sponsor of my football club, Rail Bedford. Now, I am exclusively using Gemini for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I am only buying. It is a time to buy for me. We're hodlers, right? We're hodling through this. Now, I've been using the Gemini app for buying the dips. They have crushed it with the UX. And with that, I set up my DCA for twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Now, both the app and the website make it really easy for buying and selling Bitcoin. And Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security from day one. And they are running a special offer for listeners of my podcast, What Bitcoin Did. All you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. What are the current limitations within the Lightning Network? Uh, when we first started to transact or do test payments, we were told to be reckless. 
but I always found like smaller payments, twenty, thirty, forty dollars were fine. Sometimes you get into liquidity issues. Um, but like it kind of topped out at about $150, I think. Are we, have we got much further than that? So as of right now, the, the liquidity that you can probably reliably send uh, to, we'll, we'll say the Western world for now, um, is around like $150. You could, you could probably be certain that $150, $200 will go through. Um, you start running into issues there. Uh, when you're paying people in the Lightning Network who aren't well connected, right? Um, you know, they don't have a lot of connections to, to other channels um, on the network. Um, so that's still an issue, right? If we talk about other sort of uh, comparable payment networks, um, uh, other comparable assets even, if you take a look at um, Bitcoin, right, it has $400 billion of liquidity, 400 somewhat billion. If you take a look at the amount of, you know, uh, dollar liquidity that's parked in the Lightning Network, it's a fraction of a fraction of that, right? right. Uh, as of right now, we just crossed 5,000 Bitcoin parked in the Lightning Network. So you're still going to run into liquidity issues, right? Um, the channel sizes are an issue, right? Um, obviously, right now, it's not very economical to transmit payments that are over, you know, 150, 200 bucks because channels just aren't big enough in order to route that liquidity, right? You know, you, you, you can't settle just one transaction that's 1000 or $2,000 because there aren't that many channels that are very well connected that have that amount of liquidity to reliably route it. And so I think through time, that's an issue we're facing now. Um, over time, I think there's going to be the emergence of lightning banks uh, huh. yeah. who are sort of specialized node operators. But is that basically the, the hub and spoke model that I mean, that was what was discussed early on, wasn't it? Hub and yeah. spoke models. Like, you're a spoke, I'm a spoke. Danny is a bit of a whale over there, would be a hub. And the hub what, ends up managing a lot of the liquidity. Is there any risks with that as well? Is it centralized things at all? So, you, when it comes to centralization, you wouldn't be able to censor transactions. You wouldn't be able to take funds away from individuals. It, it essentially, You've just got a fuck-off node for the Bitcoin. That's exactly right. And the beautiful thing is, you know, anyone who's really greedy, who comes into the Lightning Network and says, well, there you go. And let's say you want to become a hub. You've got 1,000 Bitcoin worth of liquidity. You're going to open up channels with a whole bunch of market participants. If you want to come into the network and steal money from people, the only way you can do it is through providing a service that people want, right? oh which is efficient, efficient routing. So it's leveraging people's hum- natural human greed and it's turning it into a service for them. So yeah, there can be bad actors on the Lightning Network, but what are they doing? They're routing payments efficiently, right? <laughs> so that's sort of the byproduct of centralization uh, is, is more channel connections, more ability to route liquidity efficiently. And hey, if they decide that their, their fee rate is higher than another guy, well, it's a free market. Another guy will step in and charge a slightly lower fee rate, right? So a bad actor could only uh, really take advantage of individual market participants, probably a short period of time before another guy came in, charged a lower fee rate for the same amount of connections and liquidity. Cool. That's very, very cool. Uh, we need to spend more time in the Lightning Network. Yeah, I was just thinking the same thing. I don't I don't know it well enough. I think it's because we're Bitcoin boomers. Yeah. It's just like a too cool, too new tech <laughs> You should us. You should get Elizabeth Stark on. Well, Elizabeth, if you're listening, we've been talking about this for four years now. Like, I want, I'm desperate to get her on. It's just finding the time to make it work. But we will. We'll get Starks on. Um uh, it's very cool to see what's happening with the Lightning Network. And, uh, I mean, we accept my football club, we accept Lightning payments, but I don't get really involved in it. And, like, OpenNode does it all for me. And I regularly give money away from my Lightning wallet. I've got a blue wallet. I've also got Moon wallet. Um, but I'm regularly giving, like, sets away. And I occasionally buy things with Lightning, but I, I've not... I just... Actually, this is a good point, Danny. 
You know, I talk about uh, Bitcoin, like you, you have to understand a lot to use Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I sometimes think that is a bit of a barrier to entry for people, this kind of like understanding a new form of money, the way it works. But with Lightning, I haven't really had to spend the time to understand it because it just works. It just works. Yeah. It just works. But you're also using the services that kind of abstract a lot of that way from you, like Moon. It's just so easy to use. Yeah. If you tried to set up a Lightning node, it'd be a bit different. Whereas you can't really do that with Bitcoin. You have to. You have to know about managing your private keys, and yeah, you have yeah. to consider the security of your private keys. You have to consider the security of your devices. You know, you have to understand addresses. You can't really fuck up with pasting addresses. Whereas with the Lightning Net, we tend to just have like an app on a phone. You scan a QR code, bang, off it goes. Yeah. The only thing I'd never actually done is like I'd convert in Bitcoin into sats on in my Lightning wallet. I'd never done the reverse. Mm. That's another thing I need mm. to look at, but oh, very interesting. Cool. I, I'm going to completely switch gears now because there's another thing I want to talk to you about because it's something uh, I've seen people talk about. I've seen your thread about it, but I don't really know what's going on with Credit Suisse. Yes. And it's getting talked about a lot. And I know you put a thread out, but like for anyone who is listening who isn't uh, aware of what's going on with Credit Suisse, who they are, talk about this because... Uh, me and Danny spoke about this, and what we're trying to understand is, is this like an isolated incident, or is this essentially, potentially the start of another uh, unwinding of a part of the financial system? Of course. So with Credit Suisse, uh, the headlines over the last week, week and a half, and this is initially sort of what, this is initially what sort of got it into the, uh, into the mainstream. Yep. A lot of people talking about Credit Suisse and their credit default swap skyrocketing through the roof. Uh, I think their, their five-year CDS was trading at... Um, 500 points or something like that. Up right. From. Um, this is where I slow you down. Okay. Explain to people what a credit default yes, swap yes. and what that indicates with regards to the company. Of course. So a credit default swap is an insurance product. Essentially, it's an insurance. Uh, it's a, an insurance product that people can buy uh, to help them maneuver around the credit risk, uh, the default risk of a company. So basically, the best way to think about it is if there's in the eyes of the market, if there's more implied default risk, more people are going to be purchasing this credit default swap contract, and then the price of that credit default swap contract increases. Who, who might be buying that? Can anyone just buy it as a, like a, as a bet, as an instrument to bet against a company? Or does it tend to be bought by people who have some kind of interest within that company and they're trying to hedge risk? So it's, it's generally speaking, counterparties uh, who have exposure to Credit Suisse um, or other banks within the system who are of the opinion that Credit Suisse... Uh, are fucked. Precisely, yeah. And people who are willing to purchase insurance on that, um, sometimes because they have direct exposure and they actually need that hedge, or sometimes because they're within the industry, they don't have necessarily a lot of like first-order exposure um, directly on the balance sheet. But... In the event of uh, an unwind of an investment bank, it, it would be fruitful to have some. And so you have different market participants, those directly connected and those not as connected, uh, who are purchasing this product. And that's what we've seen over the last week. Um, headlines are you know coming out about uh, turmoil within the company. There's a big shakeup going on, a new CEO um, who actually formerly worked at, uh, I think, Bear Stearns, was it? Yeah, Deutsche Bank, Deutsche Bank. Okay. And uh, so he, he formerly worked at Deutsche Bank. Obviously, they're also having some liquidity issues over there. Um, and there's, uh, there's major talk of a restructuring later this month. But as of right now, um, there's a, a talk about this, uh, this big capital hole um, on, its, uh, on its balance sheet and what it's going to do in order to resolve that. There are talks of it selling its United States investment bank division. There are talks of it divesting from investment banking entirely. And when these negative headlines start to swirl, then in the eyes of the market, it's time to load up on this default insurance. So as of right now, there isn't any imminent you know, 
imminent, we call it risk for default for Credit Suisse, more so in the eyes of the market, there's a heightened probability of default based on what they're hearing in the headlines. And sometimes that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. In the case of Lehman Brothers, at the start of the 2008, uh, 2007 financial crisis, um, you know, uh, mid-2007, late-2007, they weren't at imminent risk for default, but the headlines weren't very good. And as the financial crisis worsened, then people started looking at who's next in the pecking order, right? And uh-oh, the lowest-hanging fruit was Lehman Brothers. People started buying up CDS. People started selling their stock. And through time, it became an issue for them to fund themselves. Right? Can, 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 we, can we just have some context here? You were six when this happened, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I was six, six years old. <laughs> How fucking old do you feel right now? I'm very old. Oh, my God. Where do these fucking smart kids come from? <laughs> um, sorry, I don't mean to patronize you. I just think uh, like you're talking about it like you lived through it, like you naturally understand it. And it's, it's uh, yeah, I'm being a patronizing dick, but can please carry on. No, no, no. It's a, it's a, you read a lot of books, right? Um, and uh, and that's sort of where I, where I got all this. I, I haven't the faintest memory from uh, from that time. But, you know, at the start of the great financial crisis, Lehman Brothers, like I said, wasn't at imminent risk of default. Um, but through time, you know, their, their, the yield that they had to pay out on bonds, that they, the coupon that they had to pay out on bonds they were issuing was rising because Lehman Brothers bonds were selling off on the secondary market. The yield was soaring through the roof. You take a look at their, you know, their spread that they had to pay out relative to, say, uh, a government bond of equivalent maturity, and it was skyrocketing. Okay, and, hold on. Let me ask a question about bonds here, because it might be something else I've uh, n- misunderstood about bonds. Yeah. Uh, you said their bonds were selling and their rates were going up. Yep. But is that somebody selling a bond they've already bond- bought, or is that new bonds being issued by Lehman Brothers? Right. So when bond, bonds, when they're... Because aren't they fixed rate when they're sold? They are. So the coupon is completely fixed when it's sold. And then the moment that it's sold, it's probably not trading at par ever again. Yeah. Um, you know, and so the only time it's going to be par again is, is at maturity, at redemption. Um, but this bond goes, it goes off and sells on the secondary market if somebody decides, hey, I don't want this anymore for whatever reason. And what happens is, obviously, you know, if you sell it and... Uh, the, the price is lower because uh, rates are higher than because the coupon is fixed. Um, you know, the price on that bond goes down, the yield on that bond increases in order to match what the prevailing interest rate is. But the yield that they're paying is still fixed for them. It's the yield the person's receiving has gone up because they bought it at a discount. That's right. But, yeah. any, but any new issue. That's what I mean. But if they issue new bonds. Exactly. They're, they're pegged to the, that current new market rate. Correct. Whatever prevailing rate uh, yeah. is on the secondary market for that maturity, uh, they, they have to go with that rate. Okay. Okay. So back to uh, Credit Suisse. Do we know what these, this big hole is in their books? Is it just, are they fundamentally structurally unsound or is there a particular issue? So when Lehman Brothers and the resulting kind of collapse that happened after them, it was all based on pretty much the housing market and uh, these CDSs and also credit credit default swaps. I keep looking to your boss. <laughs> uh, the credit default swaps themselves, were they a part of the, the actual kind of uh, risk that was built up in the market itself, the, the products themselves, part of the contagion? So not for Credit Suisse, but for yeah. AIG. Yes. Um, so AIG, the insurance group that was selling all of these credit default swaps, for a long time, it was free money, right? If you're, you're selling default insurance on investment banks that haven't gone belly up yet, it's just free money. You're collecting the payments from people who are, uh, you know, people who purchase these and then have to pay you because there hasn't been a default yet. So for a while, AIG was collecting that free money. Is that like, uh, you know, in um, the big short, 
where they're like, yeah, we just keep, they, se- keep selling these and they're, they're laughing away. It's like, yeah. they're never going to go bust. Yeah. That's from that, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Interesting. And so essentially, like the, the major risk of, of credit default swaps soaring is that the payments that have to be made out on those contracts are increasing. Um, you know, as the price of this instrument goes up and default risk, you know, sort of looms. Um, and uh, the market applied risk of default uh, is increasing. And so in AIG's case, you know, they went bust, right? They didn't have the ability to, to, to do these CDS repayments. And as of right now, um, you know, there's been a lot of reform when it comes to U.S. investment banking, less so when it comes to European investment banking. Um, you know, these, these instruments, uh, uh, you know, in the case of like a 2008, 2009 financial crisis with, you know, some prime, subprime mortgages and then, you know, being bundled together, you know, that is something that isn't going to happen, right, as of right now. Um, what's occurring right now is more so specific to Credit Suisse. And the concern is for a lot of market participants, because the price of this default insurance is increasing so much, um, you know, what, what, what sort of funding stress is this going to introduce? And as of right now, this is why I'm saying there's no real imminent risk of default, but there is the risk of, should this continue? Should their spreads that they have to start, you know, issuing bonds at continue rising, then will they be able to finance at those rates? And as of right now, comparatively to other U.S. investment banks, uh, the answer is no. Their return on assets is very abysmal. Um, they have like a negative 0.5% return on assets compared to the U.S. counterparts who are doing relatively well. I mean, now is not a great time for investment banking, but uh, Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, they're still managing to get a positive return on assets, um, whereas Credit Suisse is not. And so Credit Suisse is, you know, for the last decade, along with Deutsche Bank, has been in a position where they haven't shown to be a very successful investment bank. Um, you know, they've been caught up in scandals in terms of generating returns for their clients. They're not necessarily the best at it. They tend to take on a whole lot of leverage. And as of right now, with these extremely tightening financial conditions very quickly, um, for a lot of people, you know, they're taking a look at Credit Suisse and saying, you know, again, this is the lowest on the totem pole. They haven't proven their ability uh, to weather relatively easy financial conditions for the next 14 years. Now that credit conditions are tightening and this funding stress is emerging, the yields are soaring, um, people are putting a, an increasing level of doubt on Credit Suisse being able to survive. Um, so this is why right. for Credit Suisse, it's not necessarily something they're holding or the fact that there's a huge hole in their balance sheet that's going to cause them to go bust, you know, immediately, sort of Lehman Brothers style. But there is the risk that, you know, they need to fund themselves over the next, uh, you know, three to you know, three months to, you know, two or three years. Uh, 78% of their outstanding debt is three years or less, four years or less, right? So if they, you know, with, with, uh, with credit spreads on their short-term paper, absolutely through the roof on um, their government spread uh, above for the, uh, for the three-month note um, is, uh, I believe, 400 basis points above uh, the, the, the equivalent risk-free rate. So for them, it's more so a matter of, will they be able to fund themselves over the next few years? It's not imminent collapse. It's, it's basically just emergent funding stress. Yeah. So it's not like... Uh... It's not like these uh, CDSs, which turned out to be junk, absolute junk, and there was like this rehypothecated collateral that once people realized these uh, mortgages were junk and the housing market slowed down and the contagion hit, it's caused Credit Suisse. Credit Suisse were just a bit shit at investing. That's right. People are recognizing that. And with the market tightening, can they fund their way out of being a bit shit? That's exactly right. Which they probably can, like sell off bits of their business and like you said, and raise some money. But like, so, so... Why are they shit? Like, what's what's been going wrong with them? 
terrible management. Okay, you know they they've been caught up in scandals. Yeah, what they've, scandals? Uh, I I I truly don't know. Danny's got Danny's got Let's the Google. That's fine. Credit Suisse scandals. Yeah, they've been caught up in a great deal of uh, scandals. Them and Deutsche Bank. They're both very. Well, Do, uh, Deutsche Bank weren't they caught uh, laundering money? Pretty sure it's Deutsche about Bank. once a month, isn't it? <laughs> we should be careful on this. I've already, <laughs> I don't want to get sued again. With uh, with Credit Suisse as well, they were caught with um, with J P Morgan, Goldman Sachs, a number of other people. Um, they were manipulating the CDS market um, in order to suppress the uh, CDS pricing. But also, um, uh, I'm not familiar with the absolute specifics. But one of the one of the aspects of it was actually pushing down that the the price of market implied default insurance to make it seem like things aren't necessarily as bad as they are. And they were caught up in that a number of years ago. That's been resolved since 2018, 2019, but that was one of the things they were caught up in. How many fucking times do these companies have to be get caught? All right, here we go. Massive leak reveals secret owners of 80 billion held in Swiss Bank. What's the, what's the title, Danny? What's that? It's revealed. Credit Suisse leak unmasked criminals, fraudsters, and corrupt politicians. <laughs> Whistleblower leaks banks' data to expose moral secrecy, moral secrecy laws. Clients included human trafficker, a billionaire who ordered girlfriend's murder, Vatican-owned account used to spend three hundred fifty million. In the Vatican, I mean the Vatican, for fuck's sake! Uh, scandal hit Credit Suisse rejects allegation it may be robot. Okay, so a massive leak from the world's biggest private banks, Credit Suisse, has exposed the hidden wealth of clients involved in torture, drug traf- trafficking, money laundering, corruption, and other serious crimes. And they fucking moan about Bitcoin. <laughs> Jesus. Details yeah. of accounts linked to 30,000 Credit Suisse clients all over the world and contained in the leak, which unmasked the beneficiaries of more than 100 billion Swiss francs held in one of Switzerland's best-known financial institutions. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely nuts. I mean, now you understand, taking a look at this, why the expression is, you know, if you've got dirty money, put it in a Swiss bank, right? You know, if you don't, if you, if you don't want to be exposed to the regulations of United States banking, put it in a Swiss bank. Um, and obviously that's been satirized through the years, but now you can take a look here, right? All of the records, um, and uh, it, it's finally coming back to bite them in the form of, uh, you know, this massive restructuring plan. It looks, uh, it looks great with Liz Trussie, the side cracking up. Um, <laughs> Okay, so these are the scandals they've been involved in, which isn't great, but you, you could be involved in scandal and make money. They're just involved in scandal and losing money. Yeah, they're, uh, they're not very good at making money. I mean, as of right now, they, uh, them and Deutsche Bank, um, they have a, a lot of leverage. Um, and uh, when funding stress is emerging, uh, you, you don't necessarily want to have a whole lot of leverage on your balance sheet. Um, it becomes increasingly difficult to, to fund yourself, uh, to make payments, things of that nature. And uh, right now, that's sort of what Credit Suisse is getting caught up in in a, in, a, in a pretty big way. It's been an issue for the last 10 years, right, when, when rates have been locked basically at the zero lower bound for, for 14 some odd years in Europe with the ECB. Their main bank rate has been negative for however many years since the, the Greek crisis. So, uh, you know, if you can't get a positive return on capital when rates are zero, you don't deserve to be an investment bank, you know? Yeah. Is there, what, what is the contagion risk of Credit Suisse blowing up? Uh, are there like, you've mentioned Deutsche Bank, uh, are there any other of these large institutions that are rumored to be at risk? Yeah. Um, so their, their assets under management are relative, are, are small relative to, um, other similar investment banks. So through the years, as they've you know shown to be pretty terrible managers uh, of wealth, um, the the size of their assets under management has basically had this slow decline. Um, and so you know, with that being said, there isn't this immense counterparty exposure that you know as soon as they go, 
tits up, then you know something will go bust, and and there's going to be this huge daisy chain effect of, uh oh, you know, Credit Suisse defaults on its debt obligations, and Merrill Lynch was holding X amount of it, so you know they and, and all this other stuff, sort of 2008 style that a lot of people are sort of accustomed to, because Credit Suisse has had this sort of slow unwind of their assets over the last you know decade and then some. Um, they don't have the counterparty exposure. Uh, that if they were to default in a pretty big way, which as of right now it doesn't look like they are, that they would, you know, sort of put the system in a in a in a catastrophic place. You mentioned a moment ago about uh, if you cannot deliver a return when we've got near zero percent yeah. interest rates, but you know that, that's a long period of like zero percent rates or near 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 uh, percent rates. What kind of distortion does that actually add? How does that kind of distort the market and warp? Extreme distortion. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, because again, look, uh, we've got interest rates going back up. What are they four and a half percent in the UK, whatever it is, and like maybe six percent to buy a house. Maybe maybe that's the interest rate you would get. And the shock from going from you get two percent mortgage to six percent is is massive. And if you're going off a fixed rate mortgage to a variable rate mortgage, that means you might not be able to afford your house. But when I was, I mean, I used to remember these TV ads when I was a kid, even. Oh, you get these uh, building societies in the UK talking about, you know, save with us and you get 7% interest, 6% in- interest. It was like an incentive to save and there was a cost to borrow. You know, like I'm not opposed to 6% interest rates. I just fear the impact on society of accelerating towards it. Yeah. Um, but how does, what, what is the warping that comes from these kind of long-term near zero interest rates? For sure. So price signals are completely decimated. Um, in, a, in a world where there are, you know, positive real interest rates and, you know, rates exactly like you just said are, you know, at five or 6%. And rates are set on, you know, the creditworthiness of borrowers and the supply and demand for, for loans, for financing. Um, but we've been in a world where those rates have artificially been held down. They're not necessarily based on supply and demand in the free market. Um, there's still an aspect of creditworthiness in there, but it completely distorts price signals. So let's take a, uh, a company, for example. Right? If they want to uh, you know, pursue a project, their required return on capital uh, is now much lower than it otherwise would be uh, under an environment where interest rate, rates are set freely. Right. Um, their, their only required return on investment is at a spread to 0.25 or whatever the, uh, the three-month T-bill has been for the last uh, you know, 14 years, apart from a brief period in 2018-2019 uh, where the Fed tried hiking. Uh, you know, at the first sign of uh, financial market distress, they waved the white flag. Um, you know, and then, obviously, we're, we're in their next tightening cycle right now. Um, during that period, people had the ability to take on debt when their cost of capital um, in, a, in, a, in an actual environment of positive real interest rates um, was extremely low, right? So in a real environment, what they were pursuing, what they were investing in, um, you know, whether it be a, a new project, a new division of the company, uh, a new product they were selling, whatever they were undergoing, the rate of return that they got wasn't hi- uh, was higher than the rates that they could finance at, but only because the rates have been locked at, you know, let's say one, two, or three percent. Um, in a normal environment, right, with normal interest rates um, that are set by the, you know, free-flowing demand for uh, for financing and for the creditworthiness of individuals, then you would you would actually see uh, a lot less uh, a lot less pursuing of projects because uh, you you would actually have to provide real economic value at a spread to what you're financing at, right? You can't pursue a project and then, uh, you know, not be able to, to 
um, provide value over what it costs you to pursue that. But that's what has occurred for the last 14 years. And it's completely distorted the way that people allocate capital, uh, whether it's human capital, whether it's physical capital. Um, they've gone ahead and done things specifically because the money is essentially free rather than pursuing them because they'll go ahead and provide a real economic value. That's what you've seen over the, over the last 14 some odd years um, when rates of, you know, by, the Fed, uh, by the Federal Reserve have been locked basically near zero. This show is brought to you by the Pacific Bitcoin Conference hosted by Swan Bitcoin this year in sunny Los Angeles. Not I've known the team over at Swan for ages, Corey, Jan, Brady, and they're pulling out all the stops to make Pacific Bitcoin a celebration of the Bitcoin community. And I cannot wait to get out there. I do love LA. I will be emceeing the conference along with my good friend, Natalie Brunel and Stefan Navera. And there's going to be an incredible lineup of speakers. You know these people, Lynn Alden, Alice Gladstein and Preston Pish. It's going to be great. Now, Pacific Bitcoin is going to be the right mix of education and fun with some unique experiences. They've got a surfing simulator and they've loaded the conference with parties before and after the event. They're bringing together the brightest minds in Bitcoin to discuss a range of topics from macro to nation state adoption, mining to lightning. Now, you do not want to miss the inaugural Pacific Bitcoin conference. I know it's going to be a special event. As I said, I cannot wait to get out there. I do love LA. Now, Swan are offering a huge 30% discount to listeners of the show. Just go to pacificbitcoin.com and use the code PETER at checkout. That is P-A-C-I-F-I-C-B-I-T-C-O-I-N.com, pacificbitcoin.com, and use the code PETER. Next up, it is Ledger. Now, recent events this year have highlighted just how important self-custody is. And Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. And the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger recently announced the launch of the new Nano S+. Plus, and the larger screen makes it easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions. The Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security of all Ledger products. And listen, I have been using Ledger products since 2017. Five years is crazy, right? And absolutely love everything they've done. They are my favorite wallet provider, and they have absolutely crushed it this year. Now, if you do want to find out more, if you want to purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. Next up is BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed a Bitcoin casino. It is trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. And not only do they have cutting edge security, but they also offer fast withdrawals and some amazing VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is the best Bitcoin casino out there. Now, if you want to find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Also, today we have Ledin from savings and accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. Now, with recent events in the lending industry, Ledin demonstrated that their robust risk management strategy was the right approach, and they are building out one of the best financial service providers in Bitcoin. Now, they don't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation nonsense and have experienced zero losses as a result of their strategy. They only support Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. 
They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they will re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. Not only are they a sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs now. I love the service, love what they're doing, love the team, and pleased to be working with them. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. So how do you uh, look at this now? Because we're in this position where rates are going back up, we have high inflation. Has Bitcoin introduced a new lens to how you see all of this? Do you think you would see it differently if you hadn't gone down the Bitcoin rabbit hole? I think I, I probably would be justifying it if I hadn't gone down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. I'd probably be staunchly defending central banks and, and the fact that they're an absolute necessity. Working um, for Jerome Powell or what, rather than Nick Bartier. Yeah, yeah, probably. I'd probably be an intern at the Federal Reserve. Uh, no. But uh, basically, with, with Bitcoin, and we talked about this at the start of the interview, um, but this new emergent suite of options for native interest rates to Bitcoin and Lightning, um, those are manipulated, right? Those are set freely by the supply of available channels and the ability of channel operators to uh, you know, accrue a return and the demand for said channel capacity. And and because those rates that are set by, by liquidity on the Lightning Network, they're not manipulated, that opens up the floodgates for an entirely new suite of uh, reference rates. And so, uh, you know, uh, a reference rate when you're getting a mortgage, that is a, a um, you know, uh, a spread to over the, you know, 10-year, 15-year, 30-year treasury bill, however long your uh, um, uh, 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 note, rather, excuse me. Oh, so hold on a second. So... Yeah. Um, if I'm going to take out a mortgage and I want to take out a 25-year mortgage, um, the rate I'm paying is basically a premium over what the bank is paying for the treasury bill. That's correct, yeah. So that's how the, the bank protects themselves against my mortgage. Correct. And, so, and sorry, sorry to just jump in there. It's like I'm learning a whole new thing today. <laughs> did you know all this? I did know this. Why don't you teach me? <laughs> um, uh, so... So the, the other question I've got with regards to that is we've seen a massive uh, kind of like drying up of mortgage products become available in the UK market. And that is because the banks are very unsure about what's going to happen with interest rates. But couldn't they still just take out those uh, UK equivalent of treasury bills? Uh, couldn't they just take those out anyway and lend against that? And not to worry about where interest rates are going because they're still going to get paid the interest rate marked above what they're going to get paid. Right, but then you run into the issue of how many people are going to actually take out mortgages at that rate. Right. Right. And so what that introduces is, is demand destruction. So that term yeah. has been thrown around a whole lot. Um, you know, with rates rising aggressively, precipitously, faster than they have in decades, um, that destroys demand. People aren't able to get mortgages. And we're actually seeing the first signs of this. Um, with the Case-Shiller Home Price Index, it starts, it, it's declined. Um, for the first time. And, and the room, and, and people have talked about this is on purpose. This is what they want to happen. They want to destroy demand. That's exactly right. I mean, the, the Fed's stated mission is to destroy demand in order to bring down inflation, right? Or rather, excuse me, bring down inflation by any means necessary. One of the ways they do that is through destroying demand. Um, much of the, the, inf- the, the price inflation that's being caused currently, you know, is, is likely a result of, uh, of structural supply chain issues. But um, as you can see right there, the first major decline in the Case-Shiller index since, uh, since just just before 2008, um, or you can see, you know, it was sort of uh, chopping around, but um, very very precipitous rise. You can sort of see the parabola-like formation 
um, sort of the exponential rise moving into 2008. And then obviously it fell off a cliff. And as of right now, um, after since 2020, you've basically seen up only to borrow a term from Bitcoin Twitter on uh, on home prices. You're starting to see those roll mm. over. So when homes can't be fine, what is it? Is this the average price in dollars of a home? Yeah. So this is uh, this is taken from 20 uh, 20 of the largest cities in the United States. Okay. And then aggregated and turned into an index. Um, but but is the number on the right? Is it like three hundred twenty thousand dollars is the average price of a home, or is it just like an in? Is that what it means? So it's it's an index. It's okay. just in points. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So. The risk is, is that drop that we're seeing on this chart mm. ends up becoming a bit like the drop we saw after 2008. Well, the, the, the thing here, um, this is just indicating that the Fed's mission is working. Oh, okay. okay the, I see. the drop that occurred after 2008, lend, lending standards have been tightened up um, pretty substantially. But by the same token, um, rates have also been you know, relatively low for the same period. So you got to wonder, um, obviously, before 2008, the issue was uh, moral hazard like associated with bad lending practices. Yeah. You fully understood that, um, you know, I'm going to, you know, lend money to this individual, but it doesn't matter for me. I'm going to get money anyway. And there was this um, extreme speculation when it came to lending uh, to people who nece- couldn't necessarily afford it. Now, lending standards have been tightened up over the last, uh, you know, uh, 14 years. So I don't anticipate some massive housing bust akin to what occurred in 2008, because there is, uh, you know, ostensibly the people who have mortgages now have a better ability to finance them. But at the same time, anybody in a variable rate, you know, my uh, my, my my variable rate on my home, um, obviously my, my dad's home, not mine. I'm not old enough yet. Uh, was you locked are, in I mean, you're old enough. Yeah, I'm old enough. Just you know, not not as of yet. You need a pay rise in. Oh come on! Oh, I gotta I gotta earn it. You gotta earn it. Jesus. Yeah. yeah, one day we'll have a proper conversation when the boss isn't here. All right, phenomenal. All right, but people have been able to finance mortgages at you know two and a half percent, three percent, three and a half percent, four percent, and now for the thirty year fixed, it's it's six and a half percent and it's 6.75%, it's 7.5%. And so that's bad for fixed rate mortgages, sure that you know not as many buyers stepping in to buy homes, but it's even worse for people with variable rate mortgages that locked it in at one of those low rates because now the issue with them is they already own a home, they're already financing a home, and now the rate is just 2X or 3X. Well, we have it in the UK, 300,000 people a month are coming off fixed rate mortgages into uh, variable rates and they the interest rates on the fixed rates have gone up, but there actually isn't a huge supply because a lot of the products have been withdrawn from the market. Was it 40%, Danny, of mortgage products, I think, were removed from the market? Was that just on the back of the stuff that was happening, or is that for long term? No, that was on the back, but we haven't seen it. I'm pretty sure there's a meeting that's meant to be happening with Quasi... Uh, what's his name? Quasi Kwarteng? Kwarteng. Kwarteng, yeah. Him and some of the uh, the CEOs of the banks in the UK to try and get... Because they've reduced the um, stamp duty rate, which uh, is kind of always used to uh, kind of um, stimulate the housing market. They usually do it at the bottom end because it's just, yeah, it's just adds a big expense to it. Um, yeah, interesting. Yeah, so the reason that this crazy rise in, in treasury yields is is so talked about and so important. A lot of people are just discovering these markets and they're saying, well, you know, why on earth is Bitcoin Twitter now completely shifted gears to talking about this huge sell-off in the United States government securities? Um, and in government securities in general, you take a look at other sovereign bonds, why is this so important? Well, the United States treasury market, that same dynamic we talked about with people borrowing at a spread to mortgages uh, uh, for their mortgages, that's also the same for everything else. So the credit card you're getting, the variable rate credit card you're getting, uh, you know, that's at a spread to a, a premium to the corresponding tenor on the treasury yield curve, right? Uh, you know, uh, or any other number of reference rates, rates that are referenced to dictate the borrowing costs for 
any other instrument for, for people, for corporations, for sovereigns. So the reason this rise is so worrisome is because obviously it's fast, obviously it's aggressive, but everybody borrows at a spread to these rates, right? For everything, right? So every form of credit that's extended um, is at a premium based on credit worthiness. It could be wider, it could be tighter uh, to these rates. And right now you're starting to see the impact of that uh, with emerging funding stress. Um, you're starting to see investment grade uh, credit default swaps. You talked about credit default swaps. So credit default swaps for investment grade companies, right? We're talking, you know, uh, you know, our Apple or Google or Microsoft, not necessarily those big players, but people who are akin to them, right? Maybe the next rung down in terms of credit worthiness. They're experiencing pretty extreme uh, funding stress and the market is pricing in a much higher likelihood of default for them. Hold on, there's credit default swaps for Apple, uh, yeah, there are uh, there there are credit default swap instruments for basically anybody that that issues uh, corporate paper or, or paper I just, for that matter. I just I I I don't know if if bond default insurance. Yeah, of course, but like bond that has a big enough market, investment banks are going to say, hey, I have a I have an insurance part for you. Yeah, no, no, I get it. No, I get it. But just like who would be buying who would be buying that? That's like that's like you know going to the. That's like betting on Man U to win the league. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah but there's a market for it. Who the fuck's going to buy it? But there's it? a product to sell, right? And so, yeah, yeah exactly. What the market is, what the, what's the market for CDS uh, on Apple? Probably not very wide, but there are also ETFs. Um, they're, right. okay. they're, they're called CDX, uh, not CDS. So credit default swap ETFs and credit default swap indexes. So, Right. Okay. So that's safe ones. Yeah. So there, there are actual yeah. products that people can buy, not just other companies, um, but, but at the retail level as well. Um, and for credit default swap indexes, that gives you a better idea of separating it into uh, investment grade versus high yield. High yield in the blue, for those people who are listening on audio, um, it's skyrocketed basically in line with investment grade. So both more credit worthy borrowers and less credit worthy borrowers are now experiencing about uh, two times the level of implied default risk than this time last year. Uh, and this is a result of rates across the board absolutely skyrocketing, right? And so the market is saying that the odds companies are going to uh, default on this are increasing. It doesn't mean they're going to default. It doesn't mean there's anything imminent. What it does show is that there's real funding stress for corporations starting to emerge. So it's that's, a signal for something else. Yeah, yeah. That's the big issue for Credit Suisse. And uh, that's the big issue for, for basically everyone like you see here. So, you know, the, the, it doesn't say that there's a huge bust imminent. What it does say is that the likelihood of a bust is increasing as these rates increase. And then this market implied default risk increases. And so, so why, why is there stress on funding? Is there less money available? Or is it because of the rate at which you have to borrow at has gone up? The rate at which you have to borrow it has gone up, right? Yeah. So what's quite interesting, Dan, Danny, can you get up Ledin's website? Because one mm -hmm. of the things I always found quite interesting was with uh, uh, the markets for borrowing and, and borrowing and saving with Bitcoin products, the Ledins, the BlockFi's, the Celsius, RAP. Um, but the rates on them were always kind of high. Like if you wanted to yeah. borrow against your Bitcoin, you're, yeah. Yeah, let's see what their rates are. Let's have a look at Ledin's. There's a reason for that. Yeah, and now yeah. I get it because yeah. it's a proper market. That's exactly right. It's not right. a suppressed market. So, so, so here we go. Let's just have a look at their rates. So uh, annual interest rate of a Bitcoin back loan is 7.9%. So you'd look at something like that and go, oh, I don't fucking pay yeah. that. I'm used to going to the bank and paying like, you know, close to nothing. That's exactly right. If we hadn't been in an interest rate environment where actual interest rates like these were held at the zero level, we'd be used to this. We'd be totally used to yeah, this. Yeah, but we've been conditioned not to be used to this. That's right. Because it's not been like a, a fair, it's, you know, it's not been a fair free market for pricing. This has been a suppressed market. But now I get it because this is pricing in real risk. What about their interest rate then? 
P2X, uh, yeah. So one thing before we go off this page, actually, is on Bitcoin-backed loans, if you scroll back Savings down, to, you look at the loan-to-value ratio. This is extremely important. So we talk about fractional reserve banking, and the idea was brought up earlier uh, when you were speaking with Nick about, well, how could a credit system exist on top of Bitcoin? And Dylan, Dylan LeClaire has spoken about this as well. Well, it's the opposite, isn't it? Yeah, it will. It'd be over collateralization yeah. of whatever loan you're getting. So let's say I want, uh, you know, a $50 loan from you, very small. Um, well, then the value of my collateral would have to be $100. Right? I'll take your sneakers. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, that's essentially what, what this loan to value ratio means. So in, in, in a market where, you know, there's actual risk associated, money cannot be lent into existence, and a loan has to generate, given out, has to generate positive real return, so you could you know pay the person who gave you the loan back. Uh, you see, fifty percent loan to value rate, mm. lower than one hundred percent loan to value ratio, because the value of your collateral has to be more than the loan that you're getting, right? So if the value of your collateral drops, right, with something volatile like Bitcoin, um, you have the ability to, to to pay it back before the lender gets underwater. That's what real interest rates look like. Okay, so on BTC savings account, you can get up to six percent APY with no minimum balance paid in Bitcoin. I mean, so the spread there is the 6% to the 7 point, was it 7.79? 7.9. Yeah, I mean, that's where they're making them. Like, it all makes sense. Like, yeah. you look at this, you're like, okay, I get this now. That, that Like, there was a cost to capital. That's exactly right. And there was a return on capital. Yep. Almost like that's how things should work. Yeah. It's funny how this Bitcoin thing makes sense, doesn't it? It's remarkable. Huh. And to tie it back to uh, what we were speaking about with, um, with sort of this suite of Lightning Network reference rates, there are a number of ways that market participants can earn a native yield on Bitcoin. Obviously, with cold storage Bitcoin, there's no native yield whatsoever, right? It sits, it doesn't do anything. And so for that reason, it's sort of akin to base layer money, like gold, right? It sits there, it doesn't do anything. Um, with something like money parked in a lightning channel, you're earning a base fee, you're earning a fee rate for actively managing the channel, right? Managing inbound and outbound liquidity, adding new connections, etc. So that's sort of like your risk-free rate, right? We call the suite of treasuries, uh, U.S. treasuries, the risk-free rate, namely the three-month bill and the 10-year note, because the default risk associated with them is the lowest in the market for rates. That's sort of the moniker risk-free rate is where it comes from. So the Bitcoin equivalent would be the Lightning Network, right? And Nick actually wrote about this originally in his piece called the Lightning Network Reference Rate. And uh, I spun it off into um, the time value of Lightning Network. And essentially, um, these these rates you can earn on the, the Lightning Network, uh, more of them are starting to appear. So we mentioned liquidity marketplaces. Because there's more associated risk there with leasing out your liquidity, um, then that trades at a premium to Bitcoin just sitting on the Lightning Network. And then also we talked about tarot. So because you're incurring more counterparty risk than you are with just leasing Bitcoin, because whatever asset the person is issuing, you incur all the counterparty risk associated with that issuer, that demands a higher premium than uh, just leasing out your liquidity. Like if you wanted to lend a tarot asset, for example, you'd demand, uh, you know, you, you'd have to pay out a higher, uh, higher premium, right? Um, and then obviously like sort of at the, at the top end of the curve would be lending off chain because you don't have the security uh, or the assuredness of lending on Bitcoin or Lightning. And so there's sort of this parallel uh, market for interest rates that's being built native to Bitcoin and Lightning it's offering an alternative um, to the highly manipulated, distorted cost of capital that we've been given uh, with the Federal Reserve and all the associated interest rates. The other thing I like about these things is also you, the, the move into uh, over-collateralization instead of having a credit score, credit worthiness score. I, I kind of prefer that model in some ways. Uh, the risk with someone like uh, a Ledin is you know, perhaps they blow up like a, a Celsius or a 
BlockFi, but I think actually, well, BlockFi didn't blow up, but um, I think they've got a proof of reserves on there. Well, I didn't have a proof of reserves. Is it on yeah. the website? Uh, I'll have a look. Let's try and get it up. Because it seems we're going to a more, like this kind of model is better mm. in that it it rewards prudence and it, it penalizes risk. And I think we live in a market at the moment outside of the fiat world where we don't pe- we don't penalize risk enough. Not at all. Banks have been conditioned to uh, expect a bailout if they have bad lending practices, et cetera. Proof of reserve standard. Your assets is okay. So there's still issues that emerge with something like proof of reserves because you're, you're hiring an auditor. But then again, you know, it's, it's not as clear cut as just auditing the Bitcoin database and running a node. Yeah, right? but look, those, yeah, you're hiring an auditor, but the, you know, and the credibility of the auditor is important. And we, yeah. do, we know from what happened in the 2008 financial crisis that people were given a grade. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, by the the equivalent of the what, what, the, so the triple eight, yeah, the triple eight triple eight ratings to people who just shouldn't have had it, but yeah. but like there is an incentive to get this right, yeah. And if Celsius did proof of reserves, like how long how long ago would we have known that Mashinsky was running a fucking Ponzi scheme? Yeah, exactly. And you you gotta wonder as well um, with proof of reserves. Even then, again, like you mentioned, you know, you, you hire an external auditor, you can still fudge the numbers, um, but it's a step up in terms of assuring the customer that you know, there is actual money on the books that's being lent out and generating a real return. I think, it's not just paper. I think there's other ways you can do it as well. So I brought them up uh, and, and next we talked about Hoseki. So Hoseki actually, again, they're an auditor, but they actually, they actually scan the blockchain and you can read it. But show, show what I've got on the Rail Bedford website. So this is what I do. I, don't, I mean, I'm not borrowing and lending money so I don't have to do this but I have a responsibility to people interested in the club if you go to um, the transparency I think the link's at the bottom of the page so go to August right so this is how I got to in terms with Hoseki so I do these income reports just tell them where we're we spending money what we're we spending on blah 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 if you go to the bottom Danny uh, keep going so Bitcoin balance so we actually, I actually give the, I provide the ZPUB. So if you, if, I mean, you can put that in a block explorer, Danny. Oh, you can, you can actually cl- click on that block path. It's not the sexiest way to do it, but. You're but, providing transparency. Yeah, but you can scan the blockchain and. But, but yeah, I'm finding, so you can actually do that. And I think if you can get to that stage where you can actually audit, you yeah. could live audit. Uh, the proof of reserve, rather than using an auditor. I think if we can get to that point, at least you can have a bit more trust. That's right. And I yeah. think I think the building of these trust models, it creates a system that's a bit more responsible. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, you, you have responsibility, exactly as you said, being reintroduced to the system. We've been chronically irresponsible, you know, since the, the introductive of centrally planned interest rate policy. People understand that, you know, interest rates are rising for now, but the first sign of trouble for the last, you know, 50 some odd years has been met with uh, a decline in interest rates and then more favorable credit conditions, right? Credit contraction is met with credit expansion. So we always know that at some point in the future, even if it's not today, I'm going to get those 0% interest rates again, or I'm going to get those, you know, lower interest rates than right now. But, you know, in a free and open market, the only way you're going to get good financing is if you're credit worthy, right? If the supply and demand, uh, you know, is is favorable for you to actually go go ahead and get a rate uh, that you can finance, um, and that's how business should actually be done. Business should be pursued because there's a positive return that can be captured, not just because money is essentially free. That's what we've seen for the last 14 years. It's distorted the cost of capital tremendously all across every single sector across the world, right? Everybody borrows at a spread to these rates, and 
uh, with these Lightning Network native, Bitcoin native uh, reference rates, I actually went ahead and I, I constructed a, a graphic um, basically plotting out uh, a risk curve of every single uh, Bitcoin and Lightning We've financial got that. instrument. We've got that chart, haven't mm -hmm. we? Yeah. yeah. So, so as you can see here. So explain it to the people listening what this is. Like, um, yeah, you should come on YouTube and check it out, but just try and explain it. Yeah, of course. So basically, this is a way of visualizing uh, a capital market based on the risk and return of all the financial instruments in that market. And you plot basically uh, risk on the x-axis, return on the y-axis, um, and basically, uh, it's a curve that moves up, starting with, at the very bottom, cold storage Bitcoin. There's no native return on your cold storage Bitcoin, but there's also no, asso no associated risk, right? Other than, of course... Your own stupidity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That or Bitcoin going to zero, whatever. Yeah. But, you know, one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin, right? And uh, next up the, the, the rung is Lightning Network Reference, right? Which is just... Um, a rate that can be standardized and published from the rate of return people are earning on liquidity parked in their Lightning channels. So Nick originally wrote about this. There are uh, several instances of different calculation methods, but there's no centralized place that actually reports this yet. As of right now, the closest thing we have is a Lightning liquidity lease, uh, which you know companies like Lightning with Lightning Pool, they offer it. Uh, companies like Magma, uh, Amboss Technologies with Magma, um, LN Router. Basically, uh, as we mentioned, you're, you're a big node operator. You've got these channels. You're leasing liquidity to participants who want to buy them. And that uh, trades. And in fixed income, we call this basis points. Um, so, you know, this is how you base, this is how you denote fixed income instruments, a, pr a 50 basis point premium to the Lightning Network reference, right? Because there's a little bit more return there for the person who's leasing it out. There's also a little associated risk. Now, the risk isn't major. Uh, the risk is like, Forced closure risk, which just means you lose your funds temporarily, you get them back. Inactive peer risk, right? Again, you know, it, it worse comes to worse, channel closes up, you settle up on chain. The risks associated with Lightning on the entire curve are far lower than those in traditional fixed income markets. Because the worst thing that could happen for the first three rates is that you lose your funds temporarily and then it gets settled up on chain. Right for the for the first mm. uh, for Lightning Network and, and the Lightning Liquidity Lease. Um, with a fixed income instrument. It, the company could outright default. Yes, right? yeah. And then you don't get your your, uh, your principal back. 50 basis points, that's half a percent. Yeah, exactly. So this is conceptual. I so, just, why do they say basis points? Why don't they just say half a percent? Like, it's language everyone well, the, knows. The reason is because, um, you know, if uh, if something dropped, you know, 50%, uh, or let's say, let's take the, the United States two-year treasury yield. If it was at 2%, um, you could say the U.S., you know, it goes to 2.1%. You can't say it went up 0.1% because uh, if it went up 0.1%, it would be 0.05%, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. um, so that's why we say basis points because, you know, whether it's a move from 2 to 2.1 or 10 to 10.1, it's still one, uh, one basis right, point. Right, that makes right? sense. I'm yeah. an idiot. No, so I get it. Oh, no, no, you're not no, an idiot. No, I'm an idiot. We, we accept this. All right, all right. Like we've agreed um, it. And then with tarot asset lending, this is, again, something that's conceptual. Um, and that basis point premium, that would fluctuate wildly. Right, right? Okay. So that's a lot dead set. That's not dead set. That's more so based on the uh, associated counterparty risk, right? If, uh, you know, if I'm issuing Joe Bucks and the United States uh, government is issuing, uh, the Federal Reserve is issuing U.S. dollars, obviously, uh, you'd be able to uh, lend out the dollar instrument at a much tighter spread than, than Joe Bucks, right? Yeah, but like based on this last hour... I actually trust Joe Bucks a little bit more than <laughs> US dollar. I'm very happy to hear. I might start my own central bank. You should do it, man. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, let me ask you something. Um, 
you know, when I go home talking to my friends about Bitcoin and the world and what's been going on and trying to really relay the conversation on Bitcoin Twitter, they think I'm a fucking nutter. Mm. Um, you're from a different peer group, a younger peer group, uh, brought up in a different like time. You obviously talk about these things with your friends. Yeah. Are these kind of things becoming more natural to understand amongst your friends or are you also the nutter? So they're becoming more easy to understand, I'll say. Right. I've, uh, I've orange-pilled two of my friends at this point. One of them just texted me the other day. Um, he has his full Bitcoin, and he's actually he, he just got his first full Bitcoin, which is milestone for me. It's the, uh, the first guy I ended up orange-pilling. Nice. And um, I naturally, I'm, I'm friends with people who are a little bit more naturally skeptical. And so when I you know, talk about central bank manipulation and how you know, the business cycle isn't meant to be this meteoric boom and then this catastrophic bust, you know, they listen, right? They understand because, you know, they're sort of of that frame of mind that, you know, there is, there are bad actors in the world. Um, and so they, they get it. They understand. Um, the people that I'm explaining this to, especially with issues like inflation, um, you know, the politics in the United States are, are heating up pretty substantially. And so people who already have an involvement of that, you know, they have a general understanding that the people who are in charge, be it the Federal Reserve or other central banks, they're not necessarily out for your best interest. And so something like Bitcoin, for the people that I speak to off of Bitcoin Twitter, right, real life individuals, um, you know, they understand it. And for that reason, they, they get Bitcoin a whole lot easier than if I was friends with people who, you know, weren't necessarily inherently skeptical. But I think even for those people, they're beginning to understand that, wait one second, what do you mean that gas is 850 in, in Los Angeles, right? They're starting to understand that, you know, obviously we're in a period of credit contraction now. So Bitcoin being a monetary debasement hedge, it did very, very well when our money was getting debased. And now that the inflation is rearing its head, inflation, you know, price inflation being a lagging indicator, we're already in that credit contraction period. Uh, Bitcoin isn't doing well. But we know that with rising fragility, we talked about Credit Suisse, um, at home and abroad, central banks are eventually going to have to flip the switch back to credit uh, expansion. And when that happens, Bitcoin will benefit, right? So you're understanding that, uh, you know, inflation is running red hot, the understanding that, um, you know, these boom and bust cycles aren't necessarily the way to go. Um, this hits home for regular people, right? Unemployment is what people understand. Inflation is what people understand. And when they understand that Bitcoin is essentially somewhere that you can park your wealth as an alternative to that at the individual level, we've spent a lot of the discussion talking about how sovereigns can add it to their balance sheet, how corporations can add it to their balance sheet, because there's these reference rates, right? Um, but for the individual as well, um, I think, more and more people are starting to to take to that idea uh, than you know they otherwise uh, would have. Amazing. Is there anything I've not talked to you about today that you would want to talk about? Hmm. Well, Bitcoin price action is pretty mundane, <laughs> um, to say the very least. I mean, like I said, you know, Bitcoin really ebbs and flows with the liquidity tide. Yeah. And so, you know, liquidity is moving out in a big way. We talked about central banks hiking uh, hiking rates aggressively. Everybody's trying to catch up to the Fed, right? The Fed was sort of the first mover. The ECB is showing signs of weakness. Um, you know, basically, uh, European um, European bond yields are uh, are soaring on some of the more fragile nations. And so, uh, really, as of right now, it's um, it's a bit of a ticking time bomb, right? The more the Fed hikes extremely aggressively, we talked about, you know, not imminent default, but likelihood of something cataclysmic occurring. The more the Fed hikes aggressively in the face of fragility abroad the more likely that something catastrophic occurs. So that's sort of the, the regime we're in now. Like, you know, Bitcoin is taking a pretty extreme backseat and at $20,000 for however long. Um, it's mostly a macro game right now. Yeah, man. Well, listen, look, uh, you're a hell of an asset for us to have in the Bitcoin space. Um, uh, you're always welcome to come back on the show. Um, 
I think you're a hell of an asset for Nick over there. And uh, yeah, I'm going to be subscribing uh, a bit more of my time to the Bitcoin layer. And I think I'm going to leapfrog Nick and just follow you, man. You seem to have got your shit together. No, it's 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 really impressive, man. And uh, I think you and Dylan are, are both really impressive characters. And it's good to know that as we've gone through this cycle, we've got you know new people coming in with new ideas, younger people. Uh, as, as condescending as that sounds, it's What it's were you doing at 21, Pete? God, at 20, I mean, I wasn't doing this shit with at 31. Uh, <laughs> 21, fuck, what was I doing at 21? Uh, I was living with my best friend, James Parkin, and uh, we would look forward to the weekend and we'd get drunk and go back to work. Wasn't thinking about any of this. Nope. But I, I hadn't invented Bitcoin at that time. Of course. Uh, no, it's great to have um, you know, new people coming in with the baton knees handed on. We just need new ideas. So it's great that you're here. And uh, yeah, congratulations. Congratulations, Nick, for having you work with him. Uh, how do people follow you on Twitter? For sure. So I can be found uh, on Twitter at Joe Consorti. Last name is spelled C-O-N-S-O-R-T-I. A bit of a complicated one. There are only 31 consortis uh, in the world, actually. Fun fact. Really? Uh, something like that. Yeah. I mean, or, or in Italy. Some, some, some odd fact. Uh, but it's not a not a common last name. But you could find me at Joe Consorti on Twitter and uh, at thebitcoinlayer.com. Uh, Nick and I write a Substack publication where we cover Bitcoin through a global macro lens. Like I said, macro is really in the front seat right now. Not so much a Bitcoin conversation. Bitcoin is, of course, very beholden to macro. So you know, whether you're an investor or somebody who's just looking to get informed, uh, that's what you should subscribe to. to get all your info all right man well listen keep crushing uh hopefully we'll hang out again sometime i don't know what conferences you're going to be at but hopefully we'll do it and yeah you're welcome to come back on the show it'd be good to see you again man most definitely thanks pete okay thank you for listening to what bitcoin did i hope you enjoyed that interview with joe consorti that's really great i mean one of the cool things that's happened in this last four-year cycle is we've seen this new wave of younger analysts coming through and it's great to see that us old timers can hand the baton over to these new Bitcoiners and lead us into the next bull market. I'm getting a bit old for this, so at some point I'll be done. But it's great to see someone like Joe coming through and also having him work with Nick. Nick's amazing. If you didn't listen to the show I recently made with Nick or any of the shows I've made with Nick, go and check them out. If you haven't checked his book out, The Bitcoin Laird, go and check that out. And if you haven't checked out the YouTube and the work those guys are doing, please do go and check that out. Right, I got to shoot, as I said in the intro. If you've got any questions about this or anything else, please do drop me an email. It is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. <laughs>